Oh, just shot up the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. And this week we catch up with former Lions and Scotland fly half, John Rutherford. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Well, Dale, I can see that there's little evidence of you being in Christmas spirit at the moment or festive cheer round about. You're still obviously some decorations to bedeck your uh, surroundings with. But other than that, how has this week been for you? The, the rest of the house has been Christmafied. It's been decked out. We've got the trees up and everything. We've got five trees in total because we've got some outside. But this is my little kind of Grinch cave that I'm in at the moment so I can kind of escape all the madness. But yeah, it's just been a, another busy week trying to spin plates before Christmas. How about yourself? Unlike Clancy Acres, I uh, have not a great deal of space. So I have uh, one slender tree and a few modest decorations, but it brings some cheer at this time. But uh, yes, we're here obviously to have a chat this week with John Rutherford and thoroughly enjoyed the interview with him. You know, he talks in detail about the the game at present, the club game at, at the moment. He talks also about his friendship with uh, former players, including Keith Robertson, Roy Laidlaw and Gavin Hastings. And of course, he does mention his recent cancer scare. So from the point of view of an ex-Lion talking about his amateur days and, and the importance of his hometown club to him and his community. So that is still to come. But of course, as we always do, we start with our type five topics. And we're better than to begin with Scotland and their performance against Ireland and, and the disappointment of a, a defeat against an Irish team that a lot of people felt were there for the taking. When we were speaking last week, we were obviously saying that we'd think that Scotland have a really good chance to go over there and get a result. And probably 28 minutes in, it looked like we could potentially do that. I think Duncan Taylor's Simbinin was virgin on potentially being a yellow card but I thought a penalty would have been sufficing then the wind was out their sails and I think as a, as a team that's probably where we are we can probably come at the fight for half an hour maybe 40 minutes and then we fall away and we allow ourselves to be bullied we were out muscled in the end and it's been a common theme for Scotland for the last couple of years is when it does get quite physical when we can't keep the tempo up and the pressure on when it does get physical we tend to be bullied and, and out muscled and such was the case we lost our confidence in defence which led to loads of disciplinary issues the referee had to give quite a lot of penalties against us and I think that's a kind of knock-on effect from the France game because we were being bullied that much we didn't have enough trust in our defence which meant we crept and there was a couple of decisions which could have went our way but I think overall we were quite ill-disciplined and against a team like Ireland over in Dublin you can't give away those sort of penalties Still searching for our first win in Dublin since 2010 Moving on then to a work in progress as it was described by Gregor Townsend himself the, the Scotland project at the moment Would you say that that's a fair comment? Defensively they have generally speaking tightened up a lot during 2020 post World Cup in attack that they're not as sharp as they perhaps need to be and they're also a team and you referred to the Duncan Taylor yellow card a team that perhaps is still struggling to deal with the, the setback of a, a sin binning when you appear to be in a position of getting back into a game or really beginning to threaten your opposition something like that happens to you and it takes a long time for you to recover from that disappointment or that loss I read the quote as a Scotland fan, I was actually quite annoyed. I felt that, taking the quote at face value, Scotland have been a work in progress for 20 years. We've got a great group of players and we definitely are improving. 
but so is everybody else. So what do we need to show that we're progressing or we've achieved? You need to win stuff. You need to make sure that you get over that next step. You win those games in Dublin, those tight games where you go in as potential, maybe not favourites, but it's a little bit more in it. You know, we are progressing defensively. We're a lot better. If the team depth is a lot better. We've said that week on week. We've said how they're playing exciting brand of rugby. It's good to watch. We are making progress, but we're not a work in progress because what we're we progressing towards. Other teams likes of England are playing bad and winning tournaments. Are they working towards winning a World Cup? What are we working towards? It irked me a little bit in saying that we're a work in progress because it didn't really wash because for as long as I can remember, we've always been a work in progress and I think Eddie O'Sullivan I don't know if you heard it as well but he said in Irish media that Scotland always puff out their chests and then go over to Ireland and end up not really doing much and whimpering away and I feel that as a Scotland fan it's not nice to hear but it's very accurate to the last wee while we went over there and dropped the ball over the line or we've had a sin bin and then fell away for two cheap scores so it's a difficult position for Scotland to be in but they have got a lot to work towards in the Six Nations but I don't know what you feel about the comment about work in progress As you say the Scotland team have perhaps over the last 20-25 years since the, the start of the, the professional game they had obviously the nucleus of a, a very good player system from the amateur days and won that championship back in 1999 Jim Telfer around the scene at the time but you always think of the last 20 years as this period of uncertainty building up expectations again getting to rugby world cup quarterfinals producing some better performances followed by some really disappointing results losing as they they have done in the past quite often to the Italians leading to the Italians always feeling that they can produce something against the Scots and really trouble them that's all historic you look post world cup there seems to have been a, a change in attitude and aspects of how Scotland play and how they address games. But I think it's interesting as well, just as an offshoot of this, there's a couple of players that have come out recently and again have identified big key moments in 2020 matches when Scotland have been up against it. Looked at those moments through Warren Gatlin's eyes and said, you know, are these players absolute nailed-on certainties to be going on Alliance Tour or are there still too many occasions where they perhaps don't show the metal required to be, you know, absolutely foremost in his mind. So it's going to be a big Six Nations for quite a few players, you'd have to say, coming up. Hogg's probably nailed on. Finn Russell's probably going to go. But then you look at the other player, like Jamie Ritchie, I think is one of the most outstanding players in the home nations. Is he a cert to go? Hamish Watson, the likes of Darcy Graham. Ali Price is playing some good rugby. It's going to be interesting when it comes line selection time after the Six Nations and see if this work in progress line can really have some backing off the end of that or if it's going to be another campaign where we sit back and go, look, what might it have been if we'd got that kick or got that try or we'd held up that ball? And uh, of course, the Six Nations underway at the start of February, Scotland heading down to Twickenham. I very much doubt we're ever going to see a repeat of that Jekyll and Hyde performance in the 38-all draw. But uh, that was the, the very worst and the very best, all wrapped up in just over 80 minutes that day. Well, we'll move away then from the international scene, just to focus briefly on Sean Maitland and Tim Swinson handed out sanctions after their barbarians' COVID breach. So this is the 8th of December, the announcement that they were handed four-week suspensions by the Rugby Football Union for their role in breaching COVID safety protocols, which led to the Barbarians match against England being called off back in October. There's also a, a financial penalty as well in there, but I think when you read on further, three weeks of the, the sanction will be suspended, subject to there being no further off-field offending by the players in the next year. Is this 
around the level of punishment you were expecting? Yeah, I think so. I think there's obviously quite a lot of players to obviously discipline for it. There was around 13 players, I believe, that were there. Some with great experience in international rugby and obviously just never towed the line. In, the, in these difficult times, there's families that have not been able to see loved ones, there's families that have lost loved ones. And, you know, for rugby players to think that they're above the law, it obviously needs to be addressed. And I think it's, you know, it's about right. As long as they can give something back, there's a lot of community rugby payback orders in there. So you're getting time out of them, valuable time, I believe, as well. But they shouldn't have done it in the first place. So certainly it looks like it's a reasonable punishment that they've been handed out. Bit of news coming out of Super 6. Of course, the, the hope that the, the competition may get underway in some shape or form in March of 2021. But the Southern Knights have extended their partnership with CGI. I think that's important for them. They've been shirt sponsors in the, the opening season. And to have that relationship, I suppose, for any club to at this, this moment in time to be able to extend a, a partnership in, in this week, given these very difficult COVID times, is, is a big boost for the, the club. It's positive because it's it's meaning they're going to be financially supported. There's going to be that partnership. But also, it's a rare bit of news from Super 6. You know, obviously, when we started doing this, we were hoping to see a little bit more action for club and, and Super 6 rugby. But, you know, it keeps it in the forefront of your mind. And you know it's still there. And at some point, it's going to come back. And hopefully, the other clubs as well, we can start hearing a little bit more from the likes of the Ayrshire Bulls and those teams as well. Dale, we'll wrap up this week's Type 5 topics by just briefly reflecting on the, the Glasgow Warriors, Dragons the conclusion to the game and on the one hand it was an excellent piece of work a, a pushover try from Johnny Matthews who's uh, certainly been relishing the opportunity to get some first team game time for Glasgow Warriors he's still only got a handful of appearances but then for that to be followed up by a conversion miss right in front of the, the posts it had shades of Don Fox in the Challenge Cup final back in 1968 for, for Wakefield. It was uh, a, a horror moment for, for Brandon Thompson. That he'll, he'll not want to look back on anytime soon, but it, it does happen to the best of players. The first thing is Johnny Matthews. I, I watched him in club rugby for the last couple of seasons and I think he's a phenomenal player. He's very athletic and it's nice to see him get a crack of the whip at, at professional rugby. So, yeah, he'd have loved for that try to be the, the winning try, but unfortunately for them it wasn't... You know, we've, we've seen it in, in club games and well, you've seen it in professional games as well, but the, the best players, they do miss kicks in front of the post. I've got a friend of mine, he's a great fly half. Uh, he's a really, really great player and missed a kick to win a game. It ended up a draw. It was in front of the sticks and, you know, it's one of those things that that was maybe seven years ago and I still rib him about it. I'm still talking about it now. It's one of those things that as a fly half, you just expect that he's going to be able to easily get that extra two points. But, you know, a little bit of pressure, a little bit of conditions and, you know, luck as well. So we're watching it back on social media and I've seen the kick and I thought, no way has he missed that. But these things do happen. I've seen a, I've seen a few fly halves do it in their time in, in club rugby. And when you're the opposition team, you've seen the reaction from the Dragons once they missed it. They were... It's like they won the the championship and it was just unfortunate for Thompson that it's going to be on his head and it's going to be following around for a long, long time. Yeah, such as the, the nature of social media and YouTube and that, there'll be plenty of reminders for him. But he, he, as a, a player, he'll want to forget all about it as quickly as possible and, and move on. It does, of course, come at a time where Glasgow and Edinburgh welcome back their international reinforcements, their international players ahead of Europe. We'll, we'll touch on Europe at the end of the podcast as the club sides leave Pro 14 for a few weeks and tackle the Heineken Champions Cup. 
So to our interview, and this week, as we mentioned at the start of the podcast, it is with John Rutherford, of course, star of a, an episode of Question of Sport, but more famously, of course, well known as the fly half who donned the Selkirk jersey more times than he would care to remember. He also played over 40 times for Scotland and featured for the British and Irish Lions down in New Zealand in 1983. Here he is discussing his close association with his hometown club, his friendship with the likes of Keith Robertson, Gavin Hastings and Roy Laidlaw and his recent battle with cancer. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. John, lovely to, to see you. I'm admiring some of your artwork in, in the background there as we conduct this Zoom call. You can be assured it's not my work, Stuart, but it's very nice. A local artist. What's it like then, from your own point of view, you're immersed in club rugby and you have been for many decades, you had your time obviously coaching and be a part of the Scotland setup as well. But this last nine months, it's alien to so many people that they're unable to go about their business and take part in hobbies and interests that are so important to them in life. How has it been for yourself not being able to go down and watch Selkirk and be involved in Selkirk's rugby exploits with yeah. the COVID? Stuart, um, it's horrible. I'm, I'm hating this time. But as you can imagine, with all clubs, there's a lot of work going on in the background. We've got a very hard-working board, of which I'm one, and we speak every Thursday night, and it's all done by Zoom. But there's been a tremendous amount of work and linking in with what Scott White's doing on the rugby side. But, yeah, you know, I miss a Saturday going down and having a couple of beers with the lads, watching the game, catching up with the players afterwards. I still love that and I'll miss it and we're still hopeful that we might get a couple of friendlies next year particularly if the borders goes into tier one there might be a chance of that happening or even some sevens tournaments so although the official the formal part of the season's cancelled we might still get some rugby what do you think the knock-on effect is going to be like obviously all clubs are different but from your point what do you think the knock-on effect is going to be for Selkirk in terms of player retention, financially, what's your, your kind of outlook? Well, look, financially, it's a disaster. We've been able to tap into the government's furlough scheme because we do have two and a half employees. So that's definitely helped. And also, I would say our members have been fantastic. I'm the membership secretary. So when you write out to people, you're having to explain, well, look, you know, might not get rugby this year. Well, I would say 95% of the members have paid up for the year, knowing that they might not get any rugby. So that's been great income. Our uh, sponsorship convener, he's spoken to all our sponsors and they've continued with their contribution. But it's still no bar, no gates, you know, and that's a large part of our income. So, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens by the end of the year. I mean, if we could get a sevens tournament deal, that'd be a big help. And I'm sure that all the border clubs are looking at this at the moment. Could this in some way then be a boost for the, the Border League if you were allowed a regional tournament and a return to at least regional rugby as the first step towards maybe a, a national programme being rolled out later in, in 2021? Could it be beneficial to that particular competition, do you think? Yeah, Selkirk were very pro that. I'm not involved in that part of the club, but I know our president and chairman have been speaking to the other clubs and... We always thought that if there was going to be any kind of rugby, it would be regionalised. And that would have been brilliant for the border clubs. Not in terms of just gate money, but seeing the boys back 
playing against all the other border teams. I think at the moment, the teams in, in terms of standard are pretty close. Hoik are probably a wee bit better than the rest of us at the moment. But if you come down below that, there's really not that much. And I think it would have been a really competitive league. I think there's certainly room for not necessarily exploiting the, the competition, but e- examining what it can perhaps offer. And as you say, whether that be in a, a sevens format, where they play one another over a sevens weekend or, or play a series of 15s matches, it would be very interesting to, to see how it would go. Because as you say, looking at the squads and paper, there's not enough a lot to choose between them. And, and that makes for an interesting competition, however you play it. Definitely. I've been encouraged with what's happening at Philippock over the last two, three years. And, you know, we're very pro-amateur rugby. And I think most clubs in Scotland now are taking that on board. And I, I know there's discussions going on at Murrayfield at the moment. And I think that will help border clubs. I think when there's no money involved, Dale, you mentioned player retention. I think that will help all the clubs. And I do think you'll see clubs getting back to being fairly even in terms of their squads. And... That'd be brilliant for the Border League. I mean, I love a vibrant, competitive Border League. I totally agree. I can see a lot of similarities in Selkirk and Peebles, for example, obviously the team I used to play for. And a lot of our best players got driven away because they were better than the players that were getting paid. And I can see there's been a big shift over the last few years, like to Selkirk. You look at their team sheet, it's completely local. You know, they're all local guys. And I think you're right in saying a border league would be really, really competitive um, between the likes of Gala, Selkirk, Kelso, Hoyk, bring the Melrose amateur team in as well. And then you've got yes. the likes of Berwick and Peebles to chuck in there as well. So it would be a good testing competition to see where Dale, things I, I wouldn't, go. I wouldn't drop Peebles out of that group. I think Peebles potentially are a sleeping giant in the borders. I think they've got a great setup there. And when Selkirk play Peebles, it's always a tough game. Last year we played you and we, we were going well and we were fortunate to win the game up in Peebles. So no, I, I certainly wouldn't discount Peebles being in that first group you mentioned. John, do you think there'll be a greater appreciation of clubs and what they stand for and their presence within communities around Scotland when we return to spectator sport you know whether that and you could extend that to football as, as well as rugby because th- there has been a fear in the past that small towns and small clubs could go to the wall if they're not looked after financially so if they can return to something close to what we've seen in the past do you think you know people will suddenly appreciate think you know we, we have to support these players and these teams going forward to protect their futures that's a great question sure and that's why i think amateurism is so important for our level of rugby. I think a lot of fundraising goes on within clubs to pay players. And if clubs didn't have to do that and invested in their infrastructure and coaching, I think players would enjoy coming. A lot of players would come back to rugby. And what you're saying about supporters, I mean, I walk through the high street in Selkirk and I speak to virtually hundreds of people that are missing the game. Rugby, not just in the borders, but in areas of the city, they're huge for the communities. You know, it's not just a game of rugby. It's going down, it's having a beer, it's dinners, it's lunches. There's a whole lot that goes on besides the game. So, yes, I think the rugby community will be really missing their rugby at the moment. And you you could be absolutely right. I think next season, if we get back to it, we might see crowds bigger, I certainly think you'll find very enthusiastic players because they must be desperate for a game. 
I also was going to ask you about when you meet up with people in the high street around Selkirk as well. They obviously associate you with the great days of a Scottish Grand Slam winning side in 1984, but the best part of 40-plus years' association with their hometown club. And that clearly draws a great deal of respect for yourself and, and what you've brought to the game. So I suppose people then be very interested in, in what you have to say, you know, about the, the future of the game, the, the future of the borders and, and the, your club in particular. Do you feel that they, they tend to talk these days more about COVID and less ab- about your time as a player just now because it's very much foremost in their minds? No, I think people do enjoy reminiscing. So I, I, have to t- I, I still meet three or four of the guys I played with on a Thursday night. We go for a beer and obviously social distancing. And there'll be lots of groups like that around Selka and the Borders. You mentioned the Scottish team. Sure, I think we're in a great place in Scottish rugby. I can't remember our squad being as strong as this, even going back 40 years. You know, we had good sides and winning teams. But if you went below 30 players, it'd be tough going. Whereas now, you look at what Gregor's developed with that Scottish squad, and there's almost three players to every position. Now, you know, Dale, we're a lot older than you, but you'll take an interest in rugby in the older days as well. I mean, can you guys remember when we've been in such a good position? I mean, we're so competitive. Certainly not not in the professional era. I think this is this potentially is the dawn of something new and very exciting in the, the professional era. And you look at the players that maybe came at the very, very end of the amateur days that straddled the changeover, I suppose, the changing of the guard between amateur and professionalism. And the quality of players around then, they're certainly like for like matching up nowadays and as, yeah. you, as you say it's, it's taken a long time to come about and it's also good I think John that it's not Scotland solely relying on the residential ruling helping yeah. us out we are finding talent from other sources as well through the age grade system Yeah no I, I'm excited and you know going back to what you're saying about locals speaking about rugby I think there was a time where they just never felt that Scotland were going to do anything, going to win whereas now People are speaking about us in terms of maybe not winning a Grand Slam, but the championship, and we uh, holding on to the Calcutta Cup. I mean, these are big wins for Scotland. You know, if you look at some of our wins over the last two or three years, they've been absolutely out of this world. I mean, when we lost Finn at the start of the year, everybody was talking about, oh, we're not going to be competitive. We win three games. We probably could have beaten Ireland and England you know, without one of our best players. So, no, I'm, I'm really quite upbeat about where we are at the moment. John, you then take this present situation and you go back to your time with Scotland, say post-Cardiff 1982. Would you say, you know, if, if you put yourself in the, the present-day squad, do you think the mindset is similar? Because after that win in Cardiff and the significance of that win, there was a feeling, and we spoke to Roger Baird about this, that the seeds were sown for either a Grand Slam success or a damn good crack at one. Yeah, well... I think you have to give credit to uh, Jim Telfer because Jim was building a team. And at that time, we were one of the few countries that went overseas every summer. And it was Australia, France, New Zealand. I mean, tough countries. So we were developing a good squad of players. We had a, a good playing system. And of course, in 83, eight of us were picked to go on a Lions tour. So that was half the team. And when we came back... I think although we lost badly against the All Blacks, 
I think that gave us a lot of confidence because we knew what the other countries had and I think we thought we could have a real go at it. I mean, you need a lot of luck to win a Grand Slam in terms of injuries and during games, you know, a lot of big decisions came Scotland's way. But yeah, and I think what you're trying to say is that 1982 game similar to what's happening at the moment in Scottish rugby. And I would love to think that I would love to see Scotland win a Triple Crown or a Grand Slam. And I think the players we have at the moment are good enough to do it. Do you think that, obviously, in, in your era, you obviously had a, we had a bit of a golden generation, if it was to be classed as that. Do you think that that's what Scotland has to be competitive? Or do you think that we should be competitive all the time? Or do you think we're maybe falling on another purple patch? Again, Dio, that's a fantastic question. I suppose if you, if you look at the history of Scottish rugby... We do go through periods where there's purple patches, as, as, as you call it, and you get a generation of world-class players who are playing. And I think that's what happened in 1990 and 1984. There was a, a lot of players at that time coming to their peak and you could put them in that world-class bracket. I think our team at the moment, you could probably look at that side and half of them are world-class. And I would be so disappointed if we didn't get seven or eight on the Lions tour to South Africa. But you're right, you know, if, if they don't take the opportunity now, while they're at their peak, you do wonder whether we've missed the chance, the opportunity, but that's just rugby deal. I'm sure Gregor is thinking that way. He's got this group of boys, and, and when I speak to him, he always says to me, there's a lot more to come from this group. It appears to have changed tact and direction since the, the World Cup. And he perhaps calls upon his backroom staff more than he did prior to that. I think maybe he was singular in his focus prior to that. Maybe that's been beneficial as well, because defensively they've been so much better in the last 12 months following the World Cup, much harder to to break down and harder to beat. And that's going to be the bedrock for any success now in the professional era, is a a strong defence. Yeah, well, you've probably read the papers there's a lot of disappointment in the rugby over maybe the last two weeks and there's been a lot of kicking and a lot of needless kicking and I'm sure modern coaches have looked at the game and thought you're almost better not to have the ball than to have it and it's a case of a team making a mistake or a turnover and I don't know uh, you guys have maybe got more stats than me but it looks to me that teams are just looking to win a penalty kick it into the corner and that's your best chance of scoring a try through a driving mall. And nobody, no rugby player or no rugby supporters want to see that as the only way of scoring a try. I suspect the legislators now are looking at our game and they're thinking, well, which direction do we want to go? Because you would have to say over the weekend, the rugby was pretty boring at times. To back that up, the number of Scottish hookers the games to tries ratio now is incredible for that very point that you raise. Yes. And they're all scoring tries from five metres out. You know, they they're throw going, in... They're going to be the top scorers uh, before you know it, Stuart. At, at, this, at this rate, they're going to equal Tony Stanger, I would seem. Granted, they're scoring against Georgia and Italy, though. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, no, that's worth pointing out as well, of course. The I suppose that the big indicator then of this current group of Scotland players in terms of their development, will be, well, I suppose, twofold. One, how they perform 
in the next Six Nations Championship when they're back in Paris and, and back at uh, London at Twickenham, but also how Warren Gatland will view their performances. Because as you say, if we suddenly get several Scots in the initial Lions selection, that's bound to boost their confidence. When you consider that three, four of them were involved in the European Cup final, yeah. that, that an indicator of where they are at club level. Yeah, no, I, I don't really know Warren. I've met him a, a couple of times, but I suspect that he didn't have a lot of trust in our players. He built his side round his Welsh players and the English players, who are traditionally the strongest uh, nation. But I think he has to start looking at our players now and seeing what they're doing regularly. As you say, not just for Scotland, but for their clubs in Europe. You know, they're performing at the highest level. And yeah, you could look through our team just now and you would have to say, and you know, you're talking about the hookers. We've probably got the best two hookers in in the uh, Six Nations at the moment. Yeah, I would, yeah, when you look at the, their impact and how they they sort of seamlessly one will start and then come off after 60 minutes and Stuart Martin yeah. and Al will go. His, his game's maybe improved since he's no longer been captain as well. You sometimes wonder if the, the captaincy had an impact on his game, but uh, that's maybe been a little unfair on Stuart McAnally, but they do work in tandem very well together. I think they're brilliant. Imagine having possibly the two Lions hookers at the moment. Dale's talking about this purple patch. You know, that's evidence of it. Can we go back to your own playing days? And I asked Roger Baird that the question about going in, and if this will maybe unfortunately bring back some painful memories for you, the, the success you had at uh, 84 at the Grand Slam and then doing so well in 86 and the, the game against Wales for Paul Thorburn not kicks from his own half that you know, it partly went to uh, preventing Scotland from winning another championship outright. But you go into a World Cup in 87. What was that like as a, the dawn of a new competition? It was structured in a way that you knew that this was going places. This was going to be not a one-off, but one in a series similar to football, but organised much later. What was it like going down to New Zealand to take part in something like that? Yeah, it was really exciting, Stuart. You know, to be uh, part of what was new and it was fairly obvious to me that the game was going to go professional at that time. Just what was happening and there was certain things you weren't allowed to do as an amateur rugby player and you'd switch on the TV and it was, it'd be an all-black uh, <laughs> promoting some product or the whole team <laughs> doing another. And uh, So that was the start of professionalism in rugby but I know I didn't play a big part in that tournament but it was a great tournament first of all some brilliant rugby I just think that that was professionalism the start of it it's, it's funny you say that because I think it's true and you look back and it, it, it didn't happen overnight it was a gradual thing it was just this gradual development and maybe as you say the, the structure of the World Cup the, the way it was put together that was a, an example of what the game could become and was ultimately going to become in in seven, eight years' time, yeah. from sort of 87 through to, to 95. Yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's global now. And, I mean, you, when you see what's happening in uh, club rugby, I mean, both these European Cups are terrific tournaments and a hell of a standard of rugby. You look back at your days then, playing for Scotland, playing for the South, playing alongside Roy, obviously. And one thing I've been thinking about quite a bit during the last few weeks, speaking to a number of your contemporaries, is that the close-knit 
relationships that you had, particularly with players that were not actually club mates, your international teammates. The bond that you obviously formed with a lot of these players is still as strong now as it was when you played with them back in the early 80s. And I can't think of another team sport at international level where that would be the case. So rugby union appears to be quite unique there. Yeah, well, and I hope that continues. Yeah, Stuart, I mean, at the moment, I play golf with Roy and Keith every week, which is great fun, and I'll tell you, it's so competitive. It's ridiculous. <laughs> There's very few gimmies. And I golf with Finn and Gavin. I see them regularly. So, uh, no, it's good. But in the 70s and 80s, that, that's why you played rugby. It was a great sport, but you made great mates. And playing for the South at that time, for somebody out of Selkirk or Jed or Melrose, it was brilliant because suddenly you're playing with, well, it'd be a full international squad and all the uh, replacements would have been international players. And to be able to play with these guys, it, was, it wasn't just an honour. I mean, I learned so much from people like Jim Rennick. I didn't know how to defend. And suddenly you're speaking to Jim and he's talking to you about drift defence and one out and two out. He just learned so much. And I always thought, with a fantastic system at that time, like you played your club rugby up until December, and then you played district rugby through December, leading up to a Scottish trial. Now, Dale, you probably don't remember this, but <laughs> Scottish trials would have 30,000, 40,000 people at Murrayfield. And it was ridiculous. It was called the probables against the possibles. <laughs> and that changed to the blues against the reds. And I'll, I'll tell you a great story, Dale. Uh, I played in one trial and I was playing for the Blues against the Reds. And this was when guys like Gavin Hastings and Scott and Ivan Tuchel, all these guys were coming through, and they were pumping us, right? And the crowd were loving it, absolutely loving it. It was the Reds' number eight that got injured. And David Leslie went on. He was meant to come in straight into the Blues team, but he told the, he told the number eight in the Reds to move at the Blues team. He <laughs> 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 the Reds, right? And... Uh, and that, that was, sure, you were talking about the 1986 team. You know, that was the start of that team where all these boys came through. And that was a really exciting team, that. <laughs> it was a brilliant system we had in Scotland in that it was club rugby, district rugby, trial, and then you were into the, uh, well, the Five Nations as it was then. And again, you're talking about the crowds that would go to Murrayfield at that time because that uh, time, as you see, the possibles against the probables of the Blues against the Reds, that almost was a, an annual occasion that people wouldn't want to miss because they wanted to see who were the, the up-and-coming players from around the country and how were they going to do against the establishment. It was, and you know, you always got the odd player coming through from the trial. I think generally that the selectors probably knew what their best side was. But when a guy performed so well in that game, he got his opportunity. No, it was good. It was a good system that... You almost feel now with Edinburgh and Glasgow, like the, the, obviously the way that the system is now, that it obviously kind of negates the need for that. But it almost then says that there's almost the need for the district rugby in an amateur level now. You know, Dale, before Super 6... I would have been quite interested in exploring that idea. I think with Super 6, it's, it would be very difficult and you've got to allow Super 6 to go through its, I think, is it a five-year mm -hmm. franchise they have? But, you know, if that didn't work, you could certainly go back to something similar where you had your club rugby, your district rugby, but instead of the players playing to make the Scottish team, 
they would be in the shop window to make the Edinburgh Glasgow team. Yeah. So it's just down one level, but I think they are at the moment it wouldn't work with a super six there. Yeah, there's almost the danger of there being too many games and too much yeah. rugby and, and maybe not enough opportunity for games to be played at a time where spectators can go and watch. Yes, aye, definitely. Well, John, listen, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Just one final question, you know, about your, yourself. How have you been during COVID? How, how's your health these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. My health's good. I get regular blood tests. I'm all clear and... Uh, just apart from missing a holiday, I think my wife and I would both love to get away and get a bit of sun, but we're lucky in the borders. You know, we really are. You know, We can walk out the house and you can walk for miles and you know, you've got to feel for people living in inner cities where they really can't do that. So, uh, no, life's good. I'm looking forward to getting my jab. Uh, I'm 65 now, Stuart, so I'll, I'll be one of the first ones to get it. Kick on from there. Absolutely. Listen, you're looking and sounding on top form and we thank you very much for your time today. Just giving us uh, some very frank and honest views on the situation at the moment, which uh, despite COVID on an international level looks quite positive. And uh, thank you as well for some of your uh, reminiscences about your time as a player. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. Tackling Scottish Rugby. John Rutherford talking to us and... Dale, just to sum up the interview, again, a, a legend of the game who really is immersed in his hometown club and you know, someone who you know will always be associated with great success in, in the, the Scottish game when you think that he was on that uh, Lions Tour in 83, built a lot from the disappointment of the, the Lions Tour to go and win a Grand Slam and then, of course, was very unfortunately injured during the, the first World Cup in 87, but will always be an iconic figure in, in the, the Scottish game. Definitely. You know, I've uh, been aware of the name of John Rutherford since I started playing rugby as a youngster, and I played my last competitive game at Philip Hawk, Four Peebles against Selkirk. When I was doing the commentary, or if I knew a few guys, or if I was near the club, John Rutherford, had just he's always been really welcoming, always spoke to me, shown an interest, and you almost forget, how great he is in terms of Scottish rugby because he's so humble and so approachable. The one thing that does stick with me with John is the fact that the respect he gets because of the hard work that he puts in back to his home club. Now, I think that is a rare, rare thing to have a guy so loyal to his own club and is still doing as much as he can to make a success. You know, I've got a lot of respect for him for that. I'm 31 year old and I've never ever going to be able to achieve or, or give back to rugby what he could probably do in a year. And it's it's just amazing the kind of input he gives back to Selkirk Rugby Club from being a player to being on the committee and, you know, doing his various roles that he's done throughout the years. I can see from the other members of Selkirk Rugby Club the high esteem that they hold him in. I'm glad to see he's in better health and enjoying his golf. Again, we come back to that local tight-knit network of rugby players supporting Roy Laidlaw as well enjoying the downtime and supporting each other so it was uh, nice to hear his thoughts on, on rugby at the moment oh, Absolutely, when you consider the, the high level that he reached as a player and the fact that he's still so interested in, in the grassroots game in, in Scotland John Rutherford then our guest will look ahead to next week and the, the start of Glasgow and Edinburgh's respective European campaigns. They both play over what is, is quite a congested opening weekend of European rugby. How much is this going to benefit both these sides having a bit of time away from what has been a very difficult Pro 14 season for one thing? And the sides know their opposition pretty well, which again is, is going to help. 
it's nice to get a fresh run at it and to be able to try and tackle a, a different competition from scratch. I've seen the players play for Scotland. I don't catch a lot of the domestic rugby in, in terms of Edinburgh and Glasgow. I will be able to catch the European stuff, but I don't know how you feel in terms of where Glasgow are, especially after that missed kick and that narrow defeat. It's probably a bit more pressure on Glasgow and Danny Wilson than it is on Cockrell for this competition. How do you think him being in a new competition is going to be? Do you think it's going to be a, a breath of fresh air or do you feel that he's going to feel more pressure because he's got to deliver? I think that there is a transition period with Glasgow. I think Danny Wilson you know, needs a season to, to bed in as a coach and, and look at trying to get across to his players his own vision, his own style, his own tactics, his own approach to the game. And I think this is uh, an opportunity against some quality opposition in Europe to bring out the, the bigger guns who are be hopefully that bit fitter and fresher and chomping at the bit to get back playing for Glasgow. I want to come in and, and just try and lift, I think, the, the whole atmosphere around the camp after what has been a, a difficult time for both Edinburgh and Glasgow when they've been down to the bare bones. So I, I think he'll relish the opportunity, first and foremost, but I, I don't necessarily think anybody has got enormous expectations for either side this season. And that might frustrate and disappoint Richard Cockrell, given how well Edinburgh had positioned themselves before lockdown was enforced back on the, the 23rd of March for his season then to peter out and for that sort of feeling of a hangover still lurking around at the Edinburgh camp still existing now. If something he'll certainly want to shake off and get his side back on the front foot and moving forward, despite the fact that both he and Danny know that their, their hands are tied to, to some degree with the, the lack of funds to try and bring in some reinforcements and, and some good experience. And now would be a, a good time to have some of those players available as, as fresh faces. But I'm sure they will do their best with uh, what is available to them. Yeah, I, I didn't know you were on first names terms with uh, Danny Wilson. <laughs> Must go way back. I think it's true, though. I think it's both teams, they welcome back some seasoned internationals into the fold. And on top of that as well, it, I think you're right, it probably is a, an occasion over the last few weeks. Cockrell, is, he's moaned about squad depth as well. You know, he's been very vocal about the amount of depth he's got in his Edinburgh squad re in recent weeks. And you wonder whether this is just going to be a good period for him to try and merge the experience with inexperience, and especially into Europe, and, and then try next year. Hopefully they've got the games under their belt. They're, they're a little bit longer in the tooth and they can then try and push on from there. But again, it, it comes back to this work in progress thing. Everything culminates and goes towards the national team. So whatever Edinburgh and Glasgow do are focused towards that as well. So they all have knock-on effects. Hopefully for the professional teams, they'll be able to bleed through a few more good professionals, good players, and this work in progress can then come to some sort of fruition. Yeah, every project has to deliver it at some stage. That has to show some results in, in some shape or form before it's then put to bed and, and a fresh approach is then rolled out once again. Just to, to finish off with, Dale, and this is by no means a, a breaking story, but it, it is beginning to build up a little bit of momentum, it, it appears, as the Pro 14 organisers uh, are negotiating to increase the number of South African teams taking part in the, the Pro 14 tournament which could see the Sharks, the Stormers, the Bulls and the Lions be introduced into the Pro 14 franchise. Now, we were talking there about the European Cup and for certainly the Irish sides that play in the Pro 14, their main objective in a season is to perform well in Europe and, and the Pro 14 does appear to be a secondary competition. Is this 
potentially going to change the, the look and the focus of Pro 14, make it a lot harder for the likes of Leinster to become as, as dominant? Could you see it then being extended to possibly South Africa at some point in the future, having a greater input into the Northern Hemisphere rugby in an international sense? Or will these be no more than discussions for you? I think I would like to see it happen, just from the basis that I feel that I can't really buy into either of the professional teams too much because I've not got enough interest in the games. It's never really accessible to watch on TV. I'm, I'm almost just a bit too far away to, to go and like support quite a lot and then do that over and above supporting a club team. I think that level of game coming in would be really good for the game, for the competition, because it would give you competitive games throughout. And as you say, put a bit more competition because, you know, the Pro 14 is a little bit prescribed at times in terms of, if it's not Leinster, it's maybe Munster or it might be the dominant Welsh team. And in the odd occasion that it was Glasgow and Connacht. But apart from that, you know, you can usually tell who the foreign teams going in are. And Leinster have been, you know, they've had the kind of lion's share for it for the last few years. So, I think bringing the South African teams in would only improve it, whether it would drive standards up or we'd be having this conversation about the Scottish teams not being able to compete and look at it, have them out in a few years. I don't know. Obviously, it's early discussions. Obviously, South Africa, there's no smoke without fire because are they enjoying being in the, the kind of the super rugby franchises down in the Southern Hemisphere? They're obviously looking at different ways to try and develop the rugby in their own country. And, and to be fair, we could probably make a couple of South African pro teams with our players we've got over here at the moment throughout Scottish rugby and, and certainly in the Premiership as well. So it's obviously a place where the South Africans like to come and play rugby. So why not bring their teams across and, and make a competition of it? Does the competition become a little bit unwieldy if you have two conferences? Does that mean that you would always have matches played during the, the Six Nations? Is that their intention? that this is going to become more of the norm going forward, that you're going to have these international matches and you're going to have a, a run of club games played pretty much in tandem, so squads are going to have to be a, a, a certain size. The increased numbers of participants in, in, say, the Pro 14, if it becomes a, a 16, for example, if the, the two existence of African teams are replaced with four fresher, higher-profile names, is that going to then become a bit, a bit harder to manage with the European competitions as well? I don't see them playing club rugby through the Six Nations. If you had a business, you're not going to get rid of all your best employees and then bring in the dregs at the bottom. Rugby, for some reason... In most of the divisions, I've never stumbled across the right way to really adopt their leagues and go forward. The Premiership have changed. The Pro 14 has changed umpteen times in the conferences. Like As a fan, I've not got enough time to sit down and figure out that if Glasgow win four games, draw one, who are they going to play on the third Tuesday in February? Like I've, I've not got enough time to try and figure out the conferences. I'd just like them to come up to a, a good league structure which gives you good competitive games. The one thing about the Pro 14 is the squad rotation because the the national teams kind of have the monopoly of their players. So it's the beauty of that for the national team. We've benefited from that, from not flogging our players, but the club side's probably taken a little bit of a blow. There would have to probably be a little bit more to come out in terms of how they would propose to manage it before you could probably have any sort of opinion. But certainly it would, it would open a lot of doors for different things. I would, I'd probably be more pro for it than now than, than against it. Time will tell, certainly. I think it's been welcomed in sections of Ireland. There's a lot of interest in examining the uh, the possibilities around some fresh faces joining Pro 14 and will, I'm sure, learn more in the, the weeks and months ahead. Dale, as always, it's been great catching up with you. Have a good week. We'll yeah, be back too. next week. More guests as we uh, approach the, the festive period and more chances to reflect on some uh, 
outstanding Scottish individual performances past and hopefully in the future as well as we start to look ahead to a, a Six Nations campaign which uh, we certainly hope will be played in front of a, a portion of spectators starting at the beginning of February but from me Stuart McFarland and me Dale Clancy thanks for listening <laughs> Just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.